Good morning. Good chapter. I'm excited about this one. All right, Acts 16. Let's pray. Father, right now, as we, as we look into your word, we're inviting you to work in our hearts. We want to we hear the things that, that you're doing in the midst of this scripture and the things that you want to do in our lives as a result. And so we trust you right now. Speak into our hearts. Speak into our lives. Amen. Amen. All right, as we get started, I want to point out something that I think is important for us to understand, and that is at the beginning of Acts, the gospel is going almost exclusively to Jews. And then as it goes along, it is going more and more to Gentiles. Now, you know, you might think, well, well what about uh, the day of Pentecost? Well, you know, the people from lots of different nations, but they are Jewish proselytes for the most part. These are people who are there for that big Jewish Passover celebration. Um, so at the beginning, it's almost entirely Jews, and then it changes. So, so I think of it like this, like it's going to Jews here at the beginning, and that tapers off as we go along. It's not going to Gentiles at the beginning, but that increases as we go along. Does that make sense? Um, and uh, so, so David actually talked about this a few weeks ago. He said that it's the inversion of the outline of the book of Luke. Luke and Acts together form a chiasm where Luke starts in Samaria and then zooms into Jerusalem. Acts starts in Jerusalem and then zooms out to the whole known world, if you will. So it begins with Jews and eventually goes to Gentiles. So there's this, this huge shift over the course of the book. So with that in mind, I want you to think back to something that Jesus said in John chapter 10. John 10, if you have the notes, it should be in there. Um, I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Hmm. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. I look at various commentaries oftentimes as I'm looking at scriptures, and Adam Clark's commentary on this particular passage said this, as if our Lord had said, do not imagine that I lay down my life for the Jews exclusively of all other people. No, I shall die also for the Gentiles. For by the grace, the merciful design, and loving purpose of God, I am to taste death for every man. And though they are not of this fold now, those among them that believe shall be, shall be united with the believing Jews and made one fold under one shepherd. Barnes' commentary said this, This is a distinct intimation that the gospel was to be preached to the Gentiles, a doctrine extremely offensive to Jews. The Jews didn't even like the Gentiles, so this was a big deal for, uh, for them. See, for us today, we don't really think about this because the vast majority of us, if not all of us here in this room, came from a non-Jewish background. And so the idea of, of the... Um, the, the, the Gentiles coming in, it's like, oh, that's nice, ho-hum, so, so what? You know, that, not, not a big deal. But for, for Jewish people, especially people reading it in this time frame, this would have been huge. Wait, Gentiles are a part of Yahweh's kingdom? What? I mean, this was crazy talk. In, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul wrote this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Very next chapter, he adds this. When, when you read this, you can perceive my insight in the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to those 
to, to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery, this mystery, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You and I are so accustomed to the idea about Gentiles that we don't even think about it. Okay, sure, there's Gentiles coming in. What, what, what's the big deal? But back in this day, this would have been such a big thing. I mean, the, the, the people would have gone, what? Gentiles? Are you sure? I mean, this is just crazy talk. And that's the story that Luke unfolds for us over and over and over again throughout this book. I mean, think about it. Early on, there's the Ethiopian eunuch, and then there's the, 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 the group of people that are gathered there at Cornelius' house, and it keeps growing and getting bigger, and we see it here in, in chapter 16, multiple people coming into the kingdom of God. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and that's what we should see as this story overall unfolds in the book of Acts. There's this this huge segment of humanity that was far off. They were alienated from God. They, were, they had no hope. And now suddenly, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, they have been brought in. They've been brought in to, to be part of the family of God. Total change. This is, this is fairy tale stuff, and yet it's true. And we see it again and again. Now, here's a big part of why I'm telling you this. If you understand that the Jews in the Old Testament were God's people. They were a type and shadow of the New Testament church. The Gentiles in the Old Testament then are the non-Christians today. You following me? So if we understand all of that, then our posture to those who are Gentiles, to non-Christians that are not God's people today, shouldn't be to belittle them, to look down on them. It should be to reach out to them, to love them, to draw them into his kingdom because they were without hope. They're alienated, and yet we want them to be brought into his kingdom. Are you with me? Amen. All right. So let's get into the text here. Right off the bat, we're introduced to a, a guy named Timothy. It's likely that this is Paul's first time meeting Timothy. We don't know that for sure, but that seems likely from, from what's said here. Um, and he circumcises Timothy. And now that seems a little bit odd because if you remember in the last chapter, do you remember the last chapter where they, they went to the apostles and the apostles said it's not, you know, circumcision is not necessary. And here he is circumcising Timothy. That seems a little bit strange. Let's read verses two and three. He, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and, be, and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, I want you to note the two cities that are mentioned here, Lystra and Iconium. If you remember uh, back just two chapters, those two, two cities are places where Paul already was. Now, it was, it's been a while since he's been there, all right? Um, you know, it, uh, in our minds, it's two chapters ago, come on. But, but he went a little bit further, and then he went all the way back to Jerusalem, got this, this mandate from the apostles, and now he's been traveling for a while back. This could be a year, could, at least several months, at the very least. Could be over a year. We don't know, but it's been a while since he's been there, so it's not like it was yesterday or something like that, all right? But if you remember, it was in Iconium that um, he got into some trouble, and the word that's used is fled. He fled from the city. This is not like, 
eh, just kind of sauntering out. No, he's, he's going because they're after him, all right? And then um, in, in Lystra, that's where Paul got stoned and left for dead, all right? Everybody with me? This was a big deal. Um, but according to this, um, because of the Jews who are in those places, apparently Paul is wanting to take Timothy into those places. Now, now the, the, the believers in those places, they spoke well of Timothy, but that has nothing to do with the, the, the non-believing Jews who were there, all right, who wanted to do away with Paul. And, and think about it. Paul's MO, his modus operandi, his, his method of operation, is when he went into a city, he would go first to where? The he would go to the first to the synagogue. You know, people have said that, that Paul, when he went into a city, he always went to two places. He always went to a synagogue, he always went to a jail. He would start at one, he'd end up at the other. Um, but he's, so he's going first to the, the synagogue, right? And those people are going to look down on Timothy if he is not seen as a Jew. So that's the reason. This was more pragmatic, if you will. Now, some people might wonder, well, how are they even going to know? Well, without trying to be too graphic about this, in a culture that has public bathhouses, it becomes pretty obvious whether or not you're Jewish, all right? So people would have thought, well, we know his father's a Greek, but apparently Timothy's a Jew. So it seems like Paul did this to keep Timothy from being harmed, if you will, because he knew he was going to be in trouble, all right? All right, verses 6 and 7. Then they went through the region of... Uh, I just want to make sure that people don't think it has anything to do with the law, okay? Verses 6 and 7. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they're, they're going along in this region because apparently they had tried to go into another place and Holy Spirit said no. And, and by the way, scholars are not sure exactly what is meant by Asia here. Um, we don't know what exactly what the, the boundaries were for that at that time, but they're pretty confident that we can say it's not Asia as we think of the continent today, all right? So some speculation about what it might be, nobody's quite exactly sure. Whatever it is, Holy Spirit said, don't go there, okay? And we know that, well, we don't know that whether this is a, a word of prophecy, whether it's somebody had like this, this inner witness, whatever, um, so they're, they're staying away from where they had been told not to go, and they're going along in another area. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So twice they are held in check, if you will, by Holy Spirit. Twice they're apparently trying to do something, and Holy Spirit says, nope. Now some people would say that Paul should have waited until he had a clear word from God as to where to go. I would say that's not how Paul is wired. He's a get-her-done kind of guy. And so he's going along. And it doesn't seem to be a problem for a Holy Spirit. Paul is going on his way, and Holy Spirit says, stop. And so Paul goes this way, and Holy Spirit says, nope. So passing by Mysia, they went down from Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help, it, help us. So after stopping Paul twice, then Holy Spirit gives a vision of where he should go. And I find it interesting to note that there doesn't seem to be any, any rebuke here of Paul. Hey, what are you doing? You have twice gone the wrong direction. 
No, he just says, hey, come over this way. Now, some people would say um, that God can't drive a guy to parked car. And as much as I like that analogy personally, all right, um, I, I would say that's not the whole story. Because there are people that are wired very differently than Paul. There are people who will not make a move until God says, this is what I want you to do. And that's okay. I'm not pitting one of those against the other. God works through us the way that he has wired us. And so apparently it wasn't a problem that Paul was going this way and Holy Spirit said, nope. And then he's going this way and Holy Spirit says, nope. And then he says, this is the one. Oh, okay. Now I'm getting it. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying one is necessarily better than the other. We're all different. God worked through Paul with his get-her-done kind of attitude, and he'll work through the other too. Don't think your way is right just because it works for you, all right? Holy Spirit is able to lead and guide people even with their, their different bent, if you will. I think that the key here is what we see in Paul. It's to have a willingness to listen to God. As long as that is on the table, then God can lead you. He will lead you and guide you in what you're doing. And sorry, this is bothering me. All right, verse 10. There, there is, at this point, there's an almost imperceptible change in the, the narrative here because it changes from they to we. All the way up until this point in, in the book of Acts, it's been they. And all of a sudden now it's we. And so the, we, we don't get a, a direct explanation here, but the probable explanation is that Luke has, just like he did for his gospel, he's researched, he's done all of this writing about it, and now Luke actually comes on the scene. He joins with that group, and he's traveling with them. So that seems to be the, the most, I mean, it would explain the, the change in writing. So, so all of them, Luke included, end up in Philippi, and there they meet a woman named Lydia. Not our Lydia, this is a different Lydia. Um, and she's from, we know three things about Lydia. She's from the city of Thyatira, she's a seller of purple goods, and she is a worshiper of God. Now, most commentators agree that being a seller of purple goods means that she has a prosperous business. Purple was a a royal, if not at least upper-class color, if you will. Um, so she was apparently a businesswoman who sold purple stuff, clothing and clothing accessories. She was the, I don't know, the purple Martha Stewart of that area. And Thyatira is, is about 250 miles from Philippi. So that, uh, clearly, you know, 250 miles, that's not like a little walk. There's a big body of water in between, so it's not a walk at all. But um, uh, it's quite a ways. So why are we finding out that she's from there? Well, many commentators suggest that likely she had dual residence. She was lived in both places depending on the, the time or the, the year, whatever. Um, so that, we don't know for sure, but at the very least, she is clearly a woman of means. Um, but I want you to notice a phrase here, Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. That when I read that, it reminded me of Jesus in Luke 24. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You know, thinking about those passages, other ones that are similar, I would offer a suggestion to you, and that is that if you're going to share the gospel with somebody, if you're going to witness to somebody, 
that you pray for that person. You know, one touch from God is way more than all of the words that you can, can convey. So pray for the person. You know, I, I'm guessing based on the fact that, that God opened her heart that they had been praying before they ever went to that Riverside gathering. So I think we need to pray that their, people's hearts would be open to pay attention, their minds would be open to understand what we say. Let God do His work because it's going to make our work a lot more effective. All right, so we move along. You know, I find this whole scene with the slave girl to be interesting. First, this girl, according to the ESV, has a spirit of divination. The Greek there is actually a python spirit. The Greek is pneuma pythona. It's a python spirit. And in that culture, python was more than just a big snake, all right? It was one of their gods uh, in that culture. The, the, here's an interesting side note. The priestesses uh, at the Oracle of Delphi uh, became known as Pythia. That's a derivative of that same word. And because of that, some commentators suggest that perhaps this gal had been one of the oracles at the, I mean, it would explain why she has this spirit of divination, of fortune-telling, all right? Um, at, at, at the very least, I can say clearly, this is not just some girl playing a game. She has a demonic spirit, all right? And it's interesting to me that this demon-possessed girl seems to have more spiritual insight than the religious leaders. She seems to be on a different plane of awareness, if you will. Verses 17 and 18, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. So she knows who they are, who they serve, and what they're doing. She's, she's getting something in the spiritual realm that the, the average person isn't. But, but why did... Why did she follow them around for days? I mean, that seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? that seem kind of crazy? And you know, as I, as I was looking at this, one, one commentator made a statement that I thought was rather interesting, said that, that there seemed to be some sort of spiritual magnetism. See, I think this gal saw a power and a truth that she had never encountered before in her life, and she's drawn to that. She's got to hang out with that. She recognized that this is not just another one of their many guides, gods. This is the most high God. This is the, the top guy, the most high. That would be a big deal in a pagan culture that believes in lots and lots of gods, right? These guys are telling you about the, the, the number one. But it's also a term that is used almost 50 times in the Old Testament to describe Yahweh the Most High God. And so I would suggest that, that not only is she saying, these guys are telling you about the, the top guy, but whether she recognized it or not, she's saying they're telling you about the God of the Jews, who is the top guy. He's the one. And she also says they're telling you about the way of salvation. This demon-possessed girl understands who these guys are and what they're doing. I, this reminds me of when Jesus encountered demon-possessed people and they knew who he was and what, what he was up to. Think of the, the man in, in Mark chapter 1. Uh, Jesus cast a demon out of him. 
Um, Mark 1, 24, the, the, the demon speaking through the man, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon knew exactly who Jesus was. And he also understood his power. Have you come to destroy us? I mean, he knew what was going on in the spiritual realm in a way that most people didn't. So there seems to be a, a recognition in the spiritual realm that often seems lacking in the, the natural, the physical realm, if you will. And, and here in, in Acts, this gal keeps hollering day after day, these guys are serving the Most High God. They're telling you about the way of salvation. Now, you guys know that oftentimes when I read scripture, I like to put myself in there thinking, you know, hey, if this was me, what would I be doing? Well, if I'm Paul in this situation, I think I might be going, hey, this is free advertising. I mean, clearly she is making money for her owners, so the people there must think she has some credibility. They must put some stock in what she says. And if she's crying out, these men are, are representing the Most High God, they're here to tell you about the way of salvation, I'm thinking this is a good thing, right? But I can also see that if she keeps doing this day after day, after a day or two, this might get old. After many days, that's what the text says, after many days, I think it might get really old, and so Paul, it says, got annoyed and cast the demon out. Somebody said it was exorcism by annoyance. I like that. And I want you to keep in mind that the, the physical person that we're talking about here is not Jesus during his visible earthly ministry. This is Paul. Paul, who just a couple chapters earlier said, said uh, we're also men of like nature with you. This is not the Son of God here in the flesh. This is just a man and he cast out a demon. Just saying. Came across this story from Valerie Kay posted on Facebook. I was walking through the Atlanta airport and I see a woman sitting on the floor sobbing, having a panic attack due to missing her flight. And I heard God's voice telling me what to do. Sit, listen, pray. I listened to her story. Long story short, she was being followed and harassed by a demon that she kept thinking was her deceased mother. It was burning words into her arms and legs. God led us to a chapel with a Bible. I read to her from Matthew 8. It's where Jesus healed the, the two demon-possessed men. I prayed that scripture over her. She was pale, shaking, looked about to vomit. I heard the words, she has to let go. I told her that until she yelled, Jesus, take this. I don't want it. Her head dropped. She stopped shaking. Finally, after a long while, she stood, and we walked out. She smiled. We hugged, and I heard God's voice once more. You may go. <laughs> Just a, 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 can I say it this way? A chance, random encounter at an airport by a normal, everyday child of God, and a demon is cast out. A normal, everyday child of God, like you and me. So back in Acts 16, the, the slave girl's owners are upset because they have now been robbed of their income, right? Verses 19 and 20, but when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So their source of income has vanished, kind of like a, a fisherman whose boat has just sunk, right? Now that's what happened 
But that's not what they say they're upset about. They say they're upset because of wanting the good of the public and the, the society. So think about that. In essence, they are saying, and, and you can look at your, your, your scripture, all right, and see if, if I'm, you think I'm doing damage here, but I think what they're saying is, to what degree are we citizens of Philippi willing to tolerate other ideas and customs that we don't like within our culture? Listen, folks, these people think differently than our cultural norms. They are anti-Roman, and we can't put up with this. Does that sound at all familiar? And that's what's going on. And I think you and I are running into a headlong collision, the same kind of thing in our culture. Just saying. N.T. Wright shared this story. A friend of mine, a few years after being ordained, was sent to work in an inner city suburb where for a long time vice had reigned unchecked. The police knew what was going on, but they were following a policy of containment rather than confrontation. As long as it didn't spread, they could keep an eye on it without interfering. Drugs, sex, and stolen goods of all sorts were readily available. Petty and not-so-petty crime flourished. And my friend, perhaps with cheerful naivety and perhaps with a strong sense of God's call, began to preach the gospel in a way that that particular church hadn't experienced for many years. His preaching had an impact. People on the street took notice. Some came to faith and began to pray for the neighborhood. More people came to believe the gospel. Addicts and prostitutes started to drop into the church. People would pray with them and try to help them out of their damaging and dehumanizing lifestyles. But then, before too long, the unofficial powers that ran the area began to take notice as well. Threatening letters began to arrive. Objects were hurled through windows. And more sinister still, my friend was struck down with a mysterious illness. For a while, he was completely incapacitated. He was only healed through urgent and prolonged prayer. He realized, and the whole church had to take on board, that what he had done was to walk into a spiritual field of force and to challenge it. The dark powers that had run the place for many years and had made a whole lot of money for a few people and a whole lot of misery for the many were striking back. That is how it often happens. Whew. And he's exactly right. And that's what Paul and company ran into here in Acts 16. Spiritual forces at work, and they had stirred them up. And, and let, me, let me add this, that the, the encounters that we see with demons in, in the Gospels and here in the book of Acts, that they remind us again and again that, that we shouldn't just look with our physical eyes. There is more to the picture. David talked a few weeks ago in his sermon about us needing corrective lenses so we can see the, 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 more than just the physical realm. There's a, a deeper and a larger story that's going on, and in this case, a more intense battle that's going on. Good news is that the gospel always triumphs, all right? But I'm telling you, don't get caught up, don't get too caught up in what you see with your eyes and hear with your ears. There is more to the picture. There is a spiritual battle that is going on that we can't see with our physical eyes. All right, we're going to keep going. The, the, the story of, of Paul and Silas going into and getting out of prison has long fascinated me. 
Beginning in verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Hold on a minute. Rewind just a little bit. How did they get to this place? It was because they cast a demon out of a girl, right? I mean, that seems like it should be a a good thing. But apparently not in this case, at at least not from the perspective of the slave girl's owners, right? And this was such a big thing for them that they were willing to lie and manipulate to stop Paul and company. And so Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. They're beaten, they're bloody, they're in in the inner cell, apparently the equivalent of, of maximum security, and their feet are in stocks. And I have long been challenged by verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Several translations say they sang praises to God or they sang hymns of praise to God. One says they were praising God with singing. Think about the events of that day. Put yourself into that position. How are you going to respond? How would I respond in that situation? Some of you might remember the name Terry Waite from like just over 35 years ago. He was a, a special... Uh, envoy from the Anglican Church sent to Lebanon in 1986. His job was to hopefully negotiate for the release of some some hostages that were being held. They were primarily missionaries uh, who had been captured and held in Iran uh, during the Islamic uh, Revolution. So the good news is that Terry Waite was indeed able to negotiate for the release of almost a dozen hostages. The bad news is that Waite himself got captured and held article that I read said he was frequently blindfolded, beaten, and subjected to mock executions. Can't fathom what that would be like. He spent much of his time chained to a radiator, suffered from asthma, and was transported in a giant refrigerator as his captives moved him about. I don't know, sounds a little bit like Paul and Silas here. Not a fun situation, right? But while he was in captivity, being a good, true, believing Anglican, every morning he offered as his own a prayer that had been written in 1596 by Queen Elizabeth I. And in it, he expressed his most humble and hearty thanks for manifold mercies so abundantly bestowed on me, as well as for my creation, preservation, regeneration, and all other of thy benefits and great mercies exhibited in Jesus Christ. Would you pray like that in that situation? Would I? Would we sing hymns of praise to God? And then there's that really coincidental earthquake that happened. But it's no ordinary earthquake. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Now, I think if there was a great earthquake, it makes sense that the foundations of the prison are shaken. I mean, we'd expect that, right? But what happens next? Immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Oh, sure, that's normal earthquake kind of stuff, right? I mean, think about it. You're sitting in prison. You're shackled. Earthquake, you feel it. And all of a sudden, the door opens and your shackles fall off. 
That seems a little bit odd, don't you think? See, in our normal context, we think of, of earthquakes as being devastating things, but um, if you think about it, they're not always. Remember when, when uh, Jesus was crucified and when he rose, there was an earthquake on both of those occasions? An earthquake from God, like this one was, clearly, can actually be a good thing. And shackles falling off might not seem quite so strange then. Keep going, verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. You know, it, you guys understand, if the prisoners are gone, then the Romans are going to kill him because that was his job, was to make sure that they, they stayed there. Um, but, but Paul says, no, don't, don't do it. We're all, we're all still here. It's okay. And sure enough, he checks. They're still there. And he brings them out of prison and he asks that big question that probably all of us know, sirs, what must I do to be saved? But I, I think we look at it wrong. I don't, I don't think what Paul is asking here is what do I need to do for eternal salvation? What, what, what do I need to do to go to the, the good place? I mean, think about it. In, in this context that we're talking about. I'm not sure that's what he meant. See, the same word is used in, in Acts 27, verse 20. If you remember, Paul is on his way to Rome and he's on the ship and the, there's this big storm and everybody's sure the ship is going down and they're jettisoning stuff over the side because they're sure that the, 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 the ship is going down. They want to lighten the load. Verse 20 of Acts 27 says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. They're not talking about eternal salvation here. That, that, that Greek word generally means rescued or delivered. And so I think what, what uh, the, the jailer is saying is, hey guys, I'm in, I'm in a mess here. What do I need to do to get out of this mess? It's basically the idea. But, but, but Paul and company turned the question inside out with their, with their answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. You want to get out of this dilemma? We've got something better for you. Kind of reminds me, I don't have any silver or gold, but I've got something better for you. You know, in essence, they're saying, we, we don't know that we can get you out of this situation. I mean, think about how many times was Paul in a situation that was at least as bad, maybe worse than this. He didn't always get out of those things, right? But, but we've got something better for you. You, you, you want to be delivered? You want to be rescued? Let us tell, us, tell you about the, the ultimate deliverance, about the ultimate rescue. And this is, a, this is a great thing, actually, for, for witnessing to people. You know, you may deal with somebody who, they're, they're going through something in their life. Maybe they're, they're going through a divorce. Maybe there's a, you know, one of their kids has just walked away from the family or gone bad or whatever. You know, lots of possibilities. And, and it's possible that Jesus might totally change that situation. I totally get that. I'm not discounting that. But when you're dealing with another person who has a free will then what God wants directly may not always happen. Oh, he'll still he can still turn it for good, okay? But what he wants may not always happen because he's, we're dealing with people that have a free will. But at the very least, you can tell them about the ultimate rescue, the ultimate deliverance. Hey, I, I'm not sure if God's going to change the situation totally, but you know what? I know a God who loves you and wants you to be with him forever. That's really, really good news right there. Amen. All right, first closing. <laughs> Sorry. 
Thanks, Warren. I, I want to uh, throw in a word about baptism here because twice in this chapter, uh, both with, with Lydia and with the jailer, we hear about a household baptism. They and their households were baptized. baptized. And so as we read these accounts, I would say that this is not just one person with their personal relationship with Christ, but their entire life coming under the lordship of Jesus. And that includes their, their family, their household. And, and I would suggest that this has to include um, how the, the faith of the parents implicates children in the parents' decision uh, to, to come under the reign of Christ. If you're a parent and you become a Christian, it is going to affect your children. It has to, has to, no question about it. But I would also suggest that in these contexts, it was more than just family. See, a household back in this time frame, especially for those that were upper class, and that was Lydia and the jailer, you know, those kind of positions had perks, okay? So he's definitely upper, upper class. So people that, that uh, were upper class, their household, it was more like, almost like a, a small business today. So no matter how you ran the business before, everything is changing once you become a Christian. All the rules have, have changed. So along with that, in those days, um, it would be pretty normal for wealthier people to have indentured servants, uh, people who, I don't know, perhaps they helped pay off some debt or something, and so now this person is working for them for a set period of time or longer, you know, whatever. And so it would include that kind of person. It would also include outright slaves that they have bought. Now, the Bible doesn't condone slavery, but the Bible is very pragmatic in allowing us to see how to live in any type of culture, really. And so it would include that in their, in their household. So a household, especially for a, a well-to-do person, could include all of that. It's kind of like, like I said, a, like a small business. And if I'm a person of means during this time and I receive the gospel, it's more than just my personal relationship with Jesus. It's about bringing all that, all that I have, all that I control, all that I influence under the lordship of Christ. So, so my family, my children, my slaves, my indentured servants, everyone who is in this sphere of influence that I have, um, I'm going to, to bring them with me into this choice, this decision to follow Christ, if you will. So, and I'm pointing th that, this out because this is, this is so, so very different than how we think in our culture. In our culture, it's all about our personal relationship with Jesus. Here, let me, let me hit this from a different perspective. Take a look at Exodus 19. God speaking, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. And I want us to especially note the words, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is God speaking to Moses about the people of Israel, and he's saying these words at Sinai. This is before the priesthood is instituted, all right? I want to make sure that we get that time frame because that's really, really important. So when Peter quotes from this section in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people uh, for his own possession, he's not referring to the priestly role of individuals. He's referring to the priestly identity of God's people collectively. See, practically everything in our society is geared around the great I. It's all about me. 
But the kingdom of God is more about a great collective, a people, a body. A couple of weeks ago, David's sermon, he said that primarily faith is corporate, not individual. I think he's right. And understanding that will change how we, how we see and read Scripture and how we live out our faith. All right, one more thing before we close. Bigger, broader idea here. What's your normal response when you get bad news about kingdom people or kingdom events? For example, maybe you get the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. Maybe you listen to what Lydia shared up here this morning. When you hear those kind of devastating kind of things going on, what's your response? How do you, how do you, how do you think in, in, in that kind of situation? Are you frustrated? Does, do you ever feel like the, the other side is winning? I'll be honest, it can feel like that at times, and that's why we need to look back at the book of Acts. Yes, Stephen was martyred. I'm not going to sugarcoat that, but because of that, the kingdom of God advanced in a big, big way. Here in Acts 16, yes, Paul encounters difficulties, no question, but we're seeing the kingdom of God expanding and moving into areas where it was not previously. We heard about it this morning, the believers in Afghanistan getting baptized. God's kingdom is advancing. God is not on the losing side, and because of that, neither are we. If circumstances knock you down, you can get back up. You have the ability to get back up in his strength. And in doing so, the kingdom of God is advancing. Even if you lose your life, you still win. Stop being timid. Stop holding back. You're on the winning side. God is with you. And I would also add that the, the story of the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his household is a strong reminder that God is ultimately in charge. I mean, how else do you explain that whole scenario, right? Think back to the slave girl earlier in the chapter. God was in charge, clearly. So God is in charge for his glory and the ultimate good of his people. Think about it. Paul was directed by God to go to Macedonia. And while he's there, he gets beaten and thrown into prison. Not a fun situation. But if that wouldn't have happened, good chance that jailer in his household might not have come into the kingdom, right? See, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to get frustrated and sometimes even upset when things don't go the way that I want them to. Anybody with me? But just because things go, don't go the way you want doesn't mean that God isn't in it. Think about your life. If God had showed you everything that was going to happen beforehand, would you have willingly gone along? Yeah, especially those of us that are older are going, no chance, not a, not a chance on earth. In this chapter, you and I are privileged to see a victorious God reigning over every situation. His word is going forth. Lives are being touched. We see God guiding Paul, even though he, he, he's, he's you know, got to kind of hem him in, push him in the right direction, going in the wrong direction, if you will. We get to see this, this, uh, this well-to-do woman, Lydia, come into the kingdom of God because God opened her heart, but also because Paul spoke truth into her. We see a woman set free from a demonic spirit. We, yes, we see Paul and Silas roughed up, but then the jailer 
and his household come into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God was advancing. You know, sometimes it feels like we're taking two steps forward and one step back, but regardless, it's still advancing. The kingdom of God is going forward. God and his kingdom will ultimately triumph. And that's still true today. You and I are on the winning team and his power will not fail. Let's pray. So thank you so much for the truth of your word. God, thank you that we get to see these, these glimpses of how you have worked in the past through your people. And Lord, we ask that we would, by your spirit at work within us, take those truths into ourselves and trust you because we know you're still the same God. You don't change. And we ask that we would see ourselves in those situations and more and more act in those situations the way that you want us to. Lord, we're grateful that you are indeed the sovereign one, the one who is over all ruling and reigning and that because of that, you will triumph and because of that, we will triumph with you. We trust you this day. Amen.